Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music most rock lovers know what the gibson les paul and the fender telecaster have brought to rock and roll but many musicians say that the moog synthesizer is every bit as important i'm jim dirigatis of vocalo.org and I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. We take a look at the history of the Moog synthesizer, and we're also going to review the new album by Arena Rockers, Kings of Leon. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. Time now for some music news. Lots of news this week over in Europe, Jim, which once again is at the forefront of the interface between music and internet downloading. America, I think, is watching what's going on in Europe at this moment to sort of determine where it's going to go in the next decade in dealing with this issue of illegal file sharing on the internet. But in France now, to encourage young people to legitimately download music... The French government is now, get this, going to subsidize young people who want to download music. Somebody buys a $70 card, which entitles them to download $70 worth of music on the Internet. The government's going to pay for half of that for the next two years. It's an interesting idea. Whether it will fly in the United States, I'm not so sure. Recall that last year they passed this three strikes law, which basically enlists the Internet service providers to shut down users who are illegally downloading music after three warnings. But now the Internet service providers are starting to resist. One of the major ones in France called FREE is telling the French government agency Hadopi, that's an acronym for the French agency that is overseeing the downloading issue, that they are not going to be sending these cease and desist letters to their users. That's the government agency's job. It'll be interesting to see how that develops. Well, and again, the United States is watching this French three-strikes-you're-out law uh, very carefully and thinking of emulating it. In Ireland, they're not going to emulate it at all, it, it seems, at the moment anyway. An Irish high court has struck down the idea of Internet service providers using this as a weapon against their customers for downloading music. In other words, they're saying that even though a substantial portion of the 150,000 customers for this one ISP called UPC are illegally downloading music, that this is not the way to deal with this problem. You can't find somebody, you can't shut them off from the Internet for downloading music. Greg, an entirely different solution has been suggested in Europe to the problem of downloading. It comes from the guy who ran Warner Music in the UK for 15 years. This fellow, Rob Dickens, was in a debate with Burtis Downs, the manager of REM, uh, and he was saying the big problem is we've overpriced recorded product. He was suggesting lowering the price of albums to about one pound in the UK, $1.50 something in the US. 
making it easier and relatively inexpensive, it's going to be better for me to just download the thing Hmm. than risk being caught, quote-unquote, stealing it. This would create a micro-economy of artists getting lots of little payments instead of losing out completely when somebody decides to illegally download a CD that's selling for $18. you got to remember, it costs almost nothing to produce a CD, and it literally costs nothing to produce a digital file. Say it ain't so, Weezer, indeed. Greg, this story is a couple weeks old, but we just have to remark on it quickly. This Seattle 29-year-old James Burns had started this internet campaign basically as a prank, raised $10 million to get Weezer to break up. (laughs) It's not that he hated Weezer. He was sick and tired of Weezer hype. He put this out on the net. Weezer took it in good spirit. They said, you know, for $20 million, we'll do the deluxe breakup. (laughs) And then eventually, not long after he got all this publicity, James Burns took his site down. We think there's two things here. Uh, Number one, he chose the wrong band. There are far worse offenders in the universe than (laughs) Weezer. Number two, he gave up too quickly. If I had to put you on the spot and say, who would you pay to see break up and go away? Oh, man. Matchbox 20, the Eagles. I mean, the list goes on. I guess. Kiss. Kiss should disappear. Kiss. I would just like to throw this out to Sound Opinions listeners. Who would you pay and how much to go away <laughs> and, and break up and get out of the way? 888-859-1800 is our Sound Opinions hotline. Or you can email us at interact at soundopinions.org. That is terminally chill by the group Neon Indian. Analog synthesizers all over that song. Neon Indian, part of a wave of bands and artists using analog synthesizers and Moog synthesizers specifically, we have seen a resurgence of this instrument, which debuted in the late 60s, early 70s in popular music. There was maybe a little downslide in its use and ubiquity as digital technology became the flavor of the 80s and 90s, but now it's back in a big way. There is a major festival on Halloween weekend in Asheville, North Carolina, featuring a killer lineup at Moogfest. Devo, MGMT, Big Boy, Girl Talk, Dan Deacon, Van Dyke Parks, Massive Attack, Thievery Corporation, CeeLo, Hot Chip, dozens of bands celebrating the Moog synthesizer in the place where Robert Moog, the inventor of the Moog synthesizer, spent the last few years of his life. It became his adopted hometown. Little did Robert Moog know that his creation would become the centerpiece of so many classic pop and rock records over the last few decades, Jim. Greg, it's absolutely no exaggeration to say that the Moog synthesizer is an instrument every bit as important as the uh, Fender Telecaster or the Gibson Les Paul. What do bands love about this weird synthesizer? To help us answer that and to provide a history of the Moog, we're joined by Brian Kehue, who's a musician, a producer, and the historian of the Bob Moog Foundation. Brian, welcome to Sound Opinions. Hi, thank you. All right, Brian, let's start with a capsule history of the Moog. Bob Moog began developing electronic musical instruments in the early 1960s, and he first attached a prototype keyboard in 1964. Can you tell us about this technology? Sure. What he made was a collection of circuits where you could create sound from scratch. And if you think about it, before that, there were electronic instruments. There were theremins, there were Hammond organs. But his idea was to create something where you could make your own sounds rather than just play music or or a theremin, for example, controls a sound. His idea was to synthesize something from component parts so you could put together this tone and that tone, filter and shape, and you could build something from the ground up, kind of paint by numbers, if you will, with sound. And that was kind of a new idea. I always love the story, the image of a young Robert Moog, 14 years old. He gets this electronics magazine. It has a circuit, uh, how to build your own theremin at home. And that's what got him started. Yeah, the theremin was actually an obsolete instrument by the time he was getting into it. It was designed in the 1920s by the Russian inventor Lev Theremin. And Bob had kind of been interested in this thing, but it was kind of over and done by the time he did it. Then tried to make a few commercially and they failed. So 
he thought, here's a cool circuit I can build. And then he and his father put together the very first ones that he made in the workshop below their house. By the time in the early 60s he gets to actually uh, building the first Moog synthesizers, as you said, collections of circuits. We, we yeah. think of a synthesizer today, I, I think most lay people, as something with a keyboard. But these things were huge. They were like the size of a refrigerator, all these different modules that you had to, like an old-fashioned telephone switchboard, you had to patch in and out. And the first one was like $11,000. Well, one thing that was cool about it, and I think this is a great idea even for today, was his circuits could be designed uh, to be combined in any size. So you could actually get a very small one if you wanted. Most people didn't. They wanted more power. They wanted more flexibility. But you could buy, you know, just one or two modules and use a filter on your radio or on your keyboard. So it's like buying applications for your phone. You can't have enough of them or software <laughs> for your computer. When do we start seeing applications of this device into uh, popular music? Well, popular music is an interesting term. The first popular record with the Moog was... Wendy Carlos, who created Switched on Bach, which is a classical record done with synthesizer yeah. only. the extremes of that classical music was the furthest thing from electronics so in a way for her to be using it was a very bold step it was to try to prove that this was as valid an instrument as a piano or a violin which is considered very traditional although they are technology of their time so it was kind of interesting the thing we always have to point out to people is when wendy was making the music of bach on the synthesizer this was a monophonic instrument at the time which meant you got one note at a time so to make a chord you would have to overdub four or five notes, right? Exactly. You'd take one pass and do the, the low notes in the chord, and then one pass do the middle notes and so forth. So how long do you figure it took her to actually do the whole Bach <laughs> concertos that she was recording? It's fascinating to listen to because there's so many notes in those as well, too. But yeah. when she recorded things, it was also not the easy way out. The way you and I might do it is to get the keyboard from a shop and then plug in the flute sound and play it. But she would create the sound from scratch... And then also vary it as she played, the way a real player plays. So it's not just a, a beginner's version of it. It's the most advanced form of it is to make the sound shape and change as you play, which most keyboard players still don't do. In answer to your question, it's probably weeks and weeks, if not months, per piece, probably several months of each piece. That, that's incredible. Where, where did she get the idea to apply it to a piece of music like that? I assume that prior to this, Brian, it had been used primarily for avant-garde music, experimental-type music forms? Yeah, the cool thing was, though, that there's a few pop people that you wouldn't expect had bought synthesizers, like the Birds and the Monkeys, and they were some of the first synthesizer users. Mm -hmm. But they weren't doing records that were very well known, and the little bits they did use is just kind of space noises. So it was considered a sound-making tool, but it would be made for... In fact, Bob even designed it for people that wanted to make weird sounds, really. Mm -hmm. But Wendy Carlos was the first commercial record that really took off, and it was the most popular classical record for many years that it ever sold, for decades at least. It was the top classical record of all time. How difficult would it have been for someone in that era to play or, or ma even master this instrument for a layman? You know, what's the difference between learning to play the Moog synthesizer and, say, a piano or a saxophone? Oh, it's uh, playing it itself is not the hard part. It's because this thing comes with no preset sounds that's the real challenge. So it comes out of the box and you unpack it. You've got to set up a bunch of cables and switches and knobs even to get the worst sound out of it. You've got to get <laughs> something going. And the funny part was for many years they didn't even have an instruction manual with it. They'd not really written one out. What they used to have was a piece of paper called a patch diagram, and you'd draw the kind of picture of the synthesizer and they would draw in the chords and the switches where you might want to put them to put a, a beginning sound and you'd start there turning knobs up or down and adjusting settings so you can get what you wanted out of it 
but it would definitely be frustrating to a lot of people. And they used to, I, I think they really didn't understand that when they first built it. They were engineers and people that understood how things worked, so they kind of assumed that the dumb musician could do it too, and it didn't <laughs> always work that way. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. We are reveling in the joys of the Moog with Brian Kehoe, who is the Moog Foundation archive historian and a Moog super geek. Let's just put it like it is, right, Brian? True. How many of these do you own? You know, the quantity is not very big. I think I have about three official Moog synthesizers, some new and some old. Let's talk about when it began to be a more practical instrument in rock. It's been said of the mini Moog that what Kraftwerk, the, the German experimental band turned pop band, did with the Moog was similar to what Chuck Berry did with the electric guitar. But when did we start to see smaller machines that had the keyboard attached that weren't the size of switchboards? It actually wasn't Moog's invention to do that, although they had made very small systems. As I said, you could buy a small thing for your school or for your you know, tabletop if you wanted to. But in England, there was a little keyboard called the Synthi, the VCS3, if you will. It's a little portable English synthesizer that has three oscillators and a filter. And that very much was the first small portable type kit you could take around. A lot of people like that, and I think Moog was even inspired by that. And they soon after made their own Mini Moog, which is a small version of the big system. So the Mini Moog became the most well-known keyboard probably the 1970s. I think it outsold everything by far. Mm. Soon enough, we start seeing these progressive rock musicians with five, six, eight synthesizers sitting on top of their Mellotrons and their Hammond organs. And it's really an inspiring sight. True, it's inspiring, but it's also limiting to the poor person that has to haul them around, or more likely, the roadie (laughs) who has to take them around. (laughs) But the reason for this, and people may not understand it, is that nowadays when you go to buy a keyboard, it has sounds built in. You can push a button for a piano, push a button for strings. And the keyboards back then, you had to literally create sounds from scratch, which is half the fun of it and half a limitation. If I want a bass sound on song number one, I've got to stop between song number one and two and reset 15 or 20 knobs and Mm. get a flute sound for song number two. So they would often have a keyboard for each sound. So you'll have one for my kind of harpsichord sound. I'll have a different one for my bass sound, a different one for my lead sound, and then do very few changes because I bought 12 keyboards to take on tour. Hmm. Wow. So let's get this straight here. Back in that era, what kind of an expense are we talking about and how much would one of these things weigh? Well, the expense would be something around the neighborhood, like a mini mug, would be around twelve to fifteen hundred dollars, and that was nineteen seventies money. You could buy three guitars for that price. Mm-hmm. So a guitar player was easily set up with his guitar and an amp before the keyboard player even had one keyboard, <laughs> much less a mixer or an amp to put it through or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely a limitation is the price, and that was a very small, cheap one, somewhere five thousand dollars, in fact, and that's in nineteen seventies money. That's the price of a car. Sure. Pretty expensive. And the poor keyboard guy, you know, had to do this to keep up with the Joneses <laughs> and to be trendy and whatever cool sounds were on the radio. You had to have at least one keyboard in that price range. And you asked about weight. Most of these were things you could carry under your arm or put them in a flight case and roll them along. But you could easily have 100 pounds in a typical keyboard. And if you're carrying six or eight keyboards, that's a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You not only had to have a certain amount of vision as a musician, but you also had to, it was work. It was a rigorous thing. It was also an economic burden. You really had to want these things in order to to make music on them. But there's also an element that's kind of visually impressive. You remember bands with the big amplifiers that stood as tall as they were on stage, and they'd line the back of the stage with Marshall amplifiers, and it was a very impressive, powerful thing. So if you see Keith Emerson from Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, or Rick Wakeman from Yes, they're surrounded by these giant and big keyboards. It's Mm -hmm. a very powerful, strong sign to see someone on stage doing that. Nowadays, if the same person walks out with a laptop, it's not very impressive. (laughs) So there was an element of it that was actually great for showmanship. It was great for the power of rock and roll. It was great for exciting people. And people said, I want to be that guy up there because he's surrounded by all these cool things and making it into great music. You could not help but wear a cape while playing one, right? Or silver boots or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Brian Eno's ostrich feathers. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. continue our celebration of the Moog synthesizer and its role in rock and roll after a short break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. 
And later on, Greg and I will review the new release from Southern Rockers, Kings of Leon. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we are exploring the legacy of the Moog synthesizer with our guest, Brian Kehu. Brian is a musician, a producer, an author, and perhaps most importantly, the historian of the Bob Moog Foundation. He's going to be holding forth on a couple of panels at Moogfest down in Asheville, North Carolina. We just heard a little bit of the, uh, the Beatles' Here Comes the Sun, which was one of the band's first uses of the Moog synthesizer. Not widely available at the time, George Harrison had to go to Robert Moog and say, hey, can you make one for me? Harrison said, interesting quote, Greg, it was one thing having one and another thing trying to make it work. There wasn't an instruction manual, and even if there had been, it would have been a couple of thousand pages long. I don't even think Mr. Moog knew how to get music out of it. Now, Brian, I think Harrison makes a great point there about the nature of this weird and unique instrument. Like you, I am a huge fan of Moogs, but for people who've never had the pleasure of uh, fooling around with one, it's really hard to describe the process. It's not like you just turn to the producer and say, hey, can you make my Moog sound like a flute, right? You may have to turn 15 knobs and dials and hit a few switches to get any noise out of it at all, and then it's going to be this weird sound you never expected. That is the charm of it. You can have these happy accidents. It's very true. And in fact, when I first got my first synthesizer in the 1970s, I had no idea how it worked, but we would set it up and make a noise, and I'd fess with the knobs until I kind of learned what function that one did. Oh, that makes the pitch go up and down, and this one makes it darker and brighter. So it's a challenge, but it also means that you're going to create something unique to you because you're not trained the same way as everyone else. So a Brian Eno would sound different than the guys from Kraftwerk, and that would sound different than Keith Emerson because they knew how to work it in a different way. It's almost like these machines had personality. They were, they were so unstable that they literally had their own set of sounds unique to that particular machine. Yes, there's a bit of it where they've made choices for you. You've only got 15 knobs and they've chosen which ones you get to adjust, but that's thousands of possibilities. And so as you're playing with it, you're going to come up with some really interesting things that maybe a trained person, in fact, like myself, who knows what he's doing now, of course, would not make the same choices because that's not the way we do things. But some kid who walks in and just turns knobs could make an amazing sound. 
I think that that's one of the things that bands are going back to now. Now, we mentioned you were a producer. I mean, that fantastic mm-hmm. album, Extraordinary Machine, with Fiona Apple. I've seen you credited on records by, you know, everybody from John Bryan to uh, The Eels and Amy Mann. Yep. So people come to you and they say, hey, work some of that old synth magic. People are drawn to the old Moogs in particular because of the very weirdness and unpredictability. Yeah, it has an interesting thing. A lot of them have been uh, given too much reputation for that, although they do kind of stay in tune. They don't go crazy out of tune, otherwise you wouldn't be able to use them, but they drift a bit, and that's a lot like a guitar, which drifts a bit, or a violin, or a human voice, which drifts a lot sometimes. Mm-hmm. So you can definitely <laughs> use things like that. They don't have to be perfectly stable. There's an element of that that I think makes it more human, more organic, and so people don't treat it as too synthetic, whereas a very modern keyboard is always perfectly in tune, always perfectly stable if you want it to be. As Jim was saying, there's a lot of contemporary groups that seem very much drawn to that early era of the synthesizers that you were talking about. There's sort of a romance about it. How difficult is it to get that quote-unquote vintage synthesizer sound that they're looking for? I mean, are these instruments widely available? How easy are they to get and put on a record? Yeah, they're actually pretty easy nowadays because some people have gone away from that world. They've gone into software and laptops, but there's a lot of old instruments floating around, and they're not all expensive. And I think it's an interesting draw why people want these. You mentioned a lot of current bands still use them. I think part of it is the nostalgia effect, or maybe that they're fond of Stevie Wonder records even if they weren't born then, and they like those sounds. The other part of it is the interface is so much fun. Volkswagen called it Farvignugan, which is the you know human interface. How much connectivity do you have with your thing? How much controllability? And they really designed these things to have a great attention to that. They have big knobs, they have big switches, they have kind of a fun interface instead of just some little clickety, tiny plastic switches. So in a lot of cases, I think people are drawn to it because they enjoy working the instrument. Let's talk about your particular passion for them. As I said, Mo Cookbook, this was a project with you and Jellyfish keyboardist Roger Joseph Manning. And mm-hmm. I remember the first record coming out, Mo Cookbook, there was a second one, Ye Old Space Band. I guess there was even a third one that was kind of self-released. The idea was the two of you would make all the sounds on the record essentially out of the vintage synthesizers. Yeah, it was definitely a concept idea even before we started. But there were a lot of records made just after Switched on Bach came out. People saw that... This record had come out and sold millions of copies doing Bach on the synthesizer. So why don't we do Rolling Stones? Why don't we do Burt Bacharach? Why don't we do country music on the synthesizer? And then we'll have a million-selling record, and it never worked for anyone else again. (laughs) So there are tons of these records out there, and they're all pretty funny. These records came out and they all failed, so we collected those independently, Roger and I. And his girlfriend was laughing about, you know, you guys should make a record sometime doing that style, but with other music. So we decided to take modern music, which was grunge at the time, if you will. Yeah. The kind of Nirvana and Soundgarden thing, very heavy guitar rock, and no one was using keyboards. So we thought, let's do an all-keyboard record as kind of a punk rock response to what guitar people are doing. Hmm. And so we did it for fun. It was definitely a joke, but we used interesting ideas, mixing styles from the 1972 and 78 periods, disco sounds, things like that. We made cover tunes. kind of funny to poke fun at the people who thought synthesizers were the sound of the future when they were actually becoming the sound of the past. Hmm. Well, you wouldn't know it nowadays, though. I mean, you, you see, again, a number of bands referencing that style. You've got Moogfest 2010 coming up on Halloween weekend in Asheville, North Carolina, where you've got three days of bands and artists for whom the, the Moog is central. MGMT, Dan Deacon, Devo, uh, Devo Hot Chip. It's an incredible lineup of groups. 
Brian, do you see us in a renaissance now when it comes to the synthesizer and the Moog, specifically in terms of just bands wanting that as a part of their sound? I think what's interesting about it is it had a period when it went away, and I was talking about the period in the 80s and 90s when things got more digital. People got into samplers and other types of keyboards, but a few diehards, maybe like myself and a few other people, kept using them. And then it came around that people said, you know, those are not dated anymore, kind of like bell-bottom jeans did go away for a long time. (laughs) And then everybody thought, well, those are kind of cool, and now you can buy them anytime you want. It's not a trend anymore. It's just kind of one of the features you can do. You can always buy a drum set, for example. It's not trendy. But the style came around as being a very valid thing. People said, I like analog synthesis. I like things with the big knobs and switches on them. I like to work that way. So it came back now to the point where we don't even treat it as anything special. You can buy a lot of new keyboards, a lot of old ones, kind of similar to the way you buy a 1950s-style Fender guitar, but it's not considered retro. I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about not only today's innovators, but the, the ones that you consider essential from the early days. Sure. It's not a short timeline. You've got decades of popularity. Sure. And so you can look at 1960s with Wendy Carlos's record in the Bach thing, and then it turns into a little bit of the Beatles using it and a little bit of Keith Emerson and, yes, with Rick Wakeman. And then some jazz people took it over into the jazz formula, which is completely different, but a good kind of expressive way to play the synthesizer, and it was Chick Corea and Herbie Hancock, Joe Zow and all. Do you have any particular favorite tracks from that era? Well, uh, definitely the standout track that everyone remembers is Lucky Man by Keith Emerson. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just a very clean, simple Moog sound. He had just got the synthesizer probably that day, and they were learning how to work it. So it wasn't the most advanced sound. It was very simple, but it works very definitively as like, this is a Moog synthesizer, and this is what they sound like. And then as you move on, you have people who can't really play. It's quite the opposite. You go away from the jazz and the progressive rock people to people like Depeche Mode and Kraftwerk, and they're basically playing with one or two fingers. They don't even have training to play, but they love the sound, and they love the purity of it. Gary Newman's a good example of that. kind of did riff rock, maybe like Black Sabbath used to do, but on synthesizers. Newman was coming out of a punk band. I mean, he was in a guitar-based punk band, and then he said, okay, I'm going to use these newfangled instruments to uh, to create my punk sound, and it happened to be a keyboard. Exactly. And the same aesthetic applies to that. We don't want to play too much. We don't like to play long solos like Eric Clapton. We want to play short, melodic mm-hmm. parts for songs. And then early records like Depeche Mode and Joy Division, people like that started using their keyboards to bring out a new sound, a modern sound to them, but not referring to the jazz or the rock or anything like that. And what about today? Well, today there's so many people using it, it's even hard to narrow it down, but you can even back up a few years to people that kind of brought it back. People like Money Mark with the Beastie Boys started using vintage synthesizers as the lead instrument, and it became a very cool thing. Now we've got groups like The Faint and MGMT, people like that, using it as part of their normal sound. And one of my favorites is a band called Kinky. They're a Mexican group. Yes. uh, Sometimes lives here in L.A. And they're amazing because they mix the style of traditional Mexican Latin rock, and they have guitars and amps and drums, but they have uh, percussion, kind of like Santana would do, if you will, but also mixing it with the DJ and dance and electronica sound, which is really cool, very powerful.
now got a very rich tradition of the Moog in popular music. What's the next vista? What's the next innovation in this area? Do you see any innovations coming down the road that are going to change the way the instrument is approached? What's kind of interesting is it is very retro in a way because the circuits are designed in a way that have limitations. They're not capable of everything. However, more and more we have options to make these things cheaper. And what's kind of funny is the first ones that Bob Moog designed, as well as a few other people back in the 60s, were these big patch panel systems. They are and probably were the most powerful ones ever built. And everything made in the 70s and 80s was kind of a very small subset, kind of like your iPod is a small version of what your computer can do. Mm -hmm. But the 60s version was definitely the full computer. You had so much more power and range, and this is what Keith Emerson would be playing and Wendy Carlos in her studio to do Clockwork Orange and things. So you can create these beautiful, incredible sounds that were not possible on what Depeche Mode or Kraftwerk used. The return is now to bigger systems like that, and you'll find most very hip producers and some really cool bands are starting to buy up vintage systems that are very big and large, very expensive, and now companies are saying, well, since that costs so much, why don't I make a new version that costs less? Mm. So there are these kind of companies starting up where you do a vintage-style synthesizer, and they truly amazed Bob Moog when he used to see those come back. He said, mm. that's like people coming back with a spinning wheel or a washboard. <laughs> to bring that back is modern technology. It's so weird for him to see that come back. And he said, but it's cool that people are buying this way, and they're thinking, I can create my own sounds. I don't use presets that they made for me at the store. I create from scratch, and I can create these wild and evolving and changing sounds that have never been possible on keyboards before. Brian Kehu is the official historian of the Bob Moog Foundation. He's also a musician, a producer, and the founder of the Moog Cookbook. Brian, thanks so much for joining us on Sound Opinions. Thank you guys too. It was fun. Now, Greg, to wrap up our love letter to the Moog, I think we each have to pick a song that we really love, prominently featuring this instrument. So many choices, and you are really killing me by forcing me to narrow it down to just one. But I'm going to go a little bit far afield into the jazz world, and, and the way jazz sort of started to influence rock and vice versa in the early 70s. Really important to note that when a serious jazz musician like Herbie Hancock adopted the analog synthesizers for his own use, that was a, that was a serious moment for this instrument in legitimizing it. Because here you have a guy who was, you know, creating massively popular jazz recordings in the 60s on piano and keyboards, not only in his solo career, but with the Miles Davis quintet. You can't get any more legit than that. Serious musician chops with Herbie Hancock. Here he is adopting this new technology, creating wonderful jazz fusion music with it in the early 70s, specifically with the group The Headhunters, which he formed with bassist Paul Jackson, drummer Harvey Mason, and saxophonist Bernie Maupin. Their 1973 debut record, you're going to hear right off the bat a marvelous use of analog synthesizers as the basis for a classic jazz track called Chameleon. It would be covered countless times afterward, not only by jazz musicians, but by rock bands like Government Mule and String Cheese Incident. The bass line in this track is not created by a bass guitar, but in fact by Herbie Hancock's Arp Odyssey synthesizer. It was a close cousin to the Minimoog, a more portable, more affordable analog synthesizer that Hancock used widely on a lot of his recordings at this time. So he's creating this bass line with the ARP synthesizer. He's dancing with the electronic bass guitar as well as the drums, creating this polyrhythmic, funky grid underneath the solos. Borrowing from Sly Stone, borrowing from Parliament Funkadelic, using this new cutting-edge technology to create this cool new sound. And over the top, you got the jazz solos. The one that you're going to hear here is Hancock on his clavinet. Another new electronic instrument that was widely being used in the 70s by not only people like Hancock, but by Stevie Wonder and numerous other funk and jazz musicians. Here it is, a portion of Chameleon, a cutting-edge analog synthesizer track from the 70s from Herbie Hancock's Headhunters on Sound Opinions.
That is Herbie Hancock's Headhunters with a track called Chameleon. Great example of analog synthesizer, I think, uh, being used in a cutting-edge jazz recording in 1973. Jim, what do you got? Absolutely, Greg. I like that pick. You go to the Pitchfork Music Festival or any cool gathering of underground buzz bands today, and three out of five bands you see are going to have a Moog on stage. Mm -hmm. Not many of them use them for more than just making noise. It's just there as a special effect, right? I think in the last 20 years, the band that has incorporated the Moog into its music better than anybody else from the indie rock spectrum is Stereolab. Formed in London in 1990, the two key players, the only players that have been there all through the band, Tim Gain on guitar and Moog and other keyboards, and uh, Laetitia Sadier on vocals and guitar and Moog and other keyboards. They're the heart and soul of the band. They were on hiatus for a couple of years, and they're coming back now big with both a new Stereolab album and a Letitia solo album. Very exciting. But a couple of key elements, we had Noi on the show with Michael Roter. They took that motoric beat of that German group from the early 70s. They paired it with these wonderful layered harmony vocals, early 60s space-age bachelor pad music, mm-hmm. right? And the third ingredient was all about the Moog. I remember talking to them. They had to boil it all down. When they came to the States, there was so much equipment that they used on the recordings, they had to choose the one to carry because this stuff was heavy and they had to deal with voltage conversion problems. The one to take when you were taking only one was the Mini Moog. Hmm. There's a wonderful video, look it up on YouTube, of Stereolab playing a song from its fourth album on the uh, Jules Holland TV show. And Laetitia starts out on the Mini Moog getting noises out of this that are dialing in from Mars. I don't know where they're coming from. The song is called Le Ypres Sound. It's by Stereolab on Sound Opinions. That is Le Eper Sound from Stereolab's 1996 album, Emperor Tomato Ketchup, a fine use of Moog. Now over to our listeners. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us about your favorite Moog track or share any of your sound opinions. Call 888-859-1800 or email us at interact at soundopinions.org. You can also connect to us on Facebook or Twitter. Next up, Greg and I will review the fifth record by that band of brothers, the Kings of Leon. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. What you're hearing is Kings of Leon from their new album, Come Around Sundown, a track called Radioactive, the first single. A band of brothers, literally, the three Fallowell brothers, bassist Jared, vocalist Caleb, drummer Nathan, and their guitar-playing cousin Matthew, formed this band in the early part of the 21st century. Just prior to that, the brothers, as teenagers, traveled around the South, the Bible circuit, with their preacher father. This almost sounds like a mythology rather than a real story, Jim. Wasn't that like a Lifetime (laughs) TV movie? Indeed. And yet the brothers say, yeah, it really happened. We we traveled around the South with, with our father. They ended up playing in a lot of churches, you know, that sort of Holy Roller style, you know, a lot of ecstatic, celebratory type of gospel music. Some of that evolved into their early records. They established a following with a blend of Southern rock, some of that gospel-infused ecstatic music that they were playing in church, with a sound that drew some comparisons, especially early on, to the Strokes. Some people refer to them as the Southern Strokes, based on what they were hearing on their 2003 debut album. That sound caught on very quickly in Europe. Within a few years, they were playing festivals during the summer around Europe, while in America, they didn't really catch on until their fourth studio album, the 2008 release, only by the night. And that really put them on the map. You can't turn on modern rock radio these days, it seems, without hearing one of the singles off that record. Sex on Fire, Use Somebody, Notion, they're all over the place. Now comes their fifth studio record, Come Around Sundown. We're going to review it in a minute, but let's play a track from it first. It's called The End from Kings of Leon on Sound Opinions. He swears he's gonna give it up It's never gonna be enough I just wanna be there When you're all alone Thinking about a better day When you had it in your bones This could be the That is the end by Kings of Leon from album number five, Come Around Sundown. And Greg, what an ordeal it is to make it through this record. Can there really be somebody who thinks it's a good idea to combine the very worst impulses of Leonard Skinner, not the good stuff, the bad stuff, and the most bombastic, over-the-top self-importance of U2 in arena mode? Apparently so. The arena rock band is such a cliche in the new millennium, playing to people who are sitting a city block away from the stage, (laughs) and yet these guys, they want to rock the stadium. They want to rock it like it's 1972. Caleb's voice drives me crazy. It's simultaneously growling and whining. There is no funky soul or blues cliche that is left unturned by those guitars the drums thunder and the bass wallops it's also over the top it's like somebody shouting at you non-stop instead of going towards some of the more experimental directions they've explored on the previous albums they have gone toward arena bombast that time spent touring with you two has done nothing but bad things for them and this album just drives me up a wall on the buy it burn it trash it scale this may be one of the worst records if not the worst record I've heard this year. I've got to trash it. Oh, you're exaggerating. I mean, that's ridiculous to call it one of the worst records of the year. You know, what it is... is I didn't even get to talk about the lyrics. uh, You want me to talk about the lyrics? And then we'll really be justified. It's a 
competent arena rock record. But that said, I'm a bigger fan of this band than you are. I really enjoyed their debut in 2003, Youth and Young Manhood. I particularly stand by that song, Molly's Chambers. I think they had a sound there that was a fascinating take on what was going on in New York at the time. And I do like that Southern rock influence. I love the fact that they were bringing in some of that holy roller boogie into their music. It made them distinctive. They have become less and less distinctive with each album. And on this fifth record, I think they've really lost the plot. You're right. They have become U2 or want to become U2 or Coldplay, where atmosphere sort of trumps guitar. And that's the one thing that's really missing on this record. Caleb's mumbled vocals. There's a sexiness there maybe early on in the record. Now it just sounds like, I ain't got no home. Everything I cherish is slowly dying. I know. know, know. Little shaking babies and drunkards all agree. Once the show gets started, it's something to see. And it's like, you know what this is? This is like sub-creed. This is chicken (laughs) fried Sturm und Drang. You're just waiting for that one song about what a drag it is to be a rock star. Thankfully, he didn't put it on this record, but it's coming. You can tell it's coming on the next record. The rhythm section, which was so great on those early records, the drummer's really muted on this record. There's no drive. It's a very brooding, drowsy, slow-moving record. I'm not going to trash it completely. I mean, there are a couple of songs on here that I actually like, but at best, it's a burn it, and this band's career is going in the wrong direction right now. Trash it for me, a burn it from you, and you are being kind. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to celebrate Halloween by playing more of our favorite scary rock songs of all time. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out, and I'll describe our ace team in terms of Moog instruments. Julia Mullen-Gordon, our intern, she is a Moog prodigy. Robin Lynn, one of our producers, she is a mini Moog. The other producer, Jason Saldana, he is a Moog rogue, of course. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia, he's a theremin. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey guys, this is Jason from Tennessee, and I just got finished listening to your album dissection of Pink Floyd's The Wall. I'm not a Pink Floyd fan, but I thought I'd give it a shot. Maybe I'd gain some appreciation. Rather, the opposite was true. After listening to that, I hate them even more. What a bunch of self-indulgent, overblown, self-important crap. So you thought you might like to go to the show To feel the warm thrill of confusion that space cadet glow And the arrogance throughout this entire band and their work is phenomenal to me. Anyway, I do enjoy your show. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Hi, my name is Claire Bozick. I'm calling from Brookfield. I listened to your program today about Pink Floyd, and I was surprised that you didn't bring up the movie. I was a kid growing up at that time out in a small town here in Illinois, And I love Pink Floyd. Of course, I didn't get to go to the concert, but I did go to the movie. And after all those years of loving Pink Floyd, I came away from the movie thinking, man, they really hate girls. And in fact, I put away my album for quite a while and really never listened to it again after that because I couldn't get that out of my head. It's not until I've grown up that that kind of sick feeling has left about that. So... I don't know who had the idea to make the movie or who reviewed the images, but I thought it really sucked. Thanks a lot. Hey guys, my name's Adam, uh, calling from Sacramento, California, where I listen to the podcast. Just listened to your piece on the Ben Folds-Nick Hornby collaboration. 
I was also disappointed in it, although not nearly as disappointed as you guys were, and took a little bit of issue with the lyrics that you're criticized being the only lyrics I could find on the album that actually were not written by the folks who came up with the album. I think the lyrics you took particular issue with were from Levi Johnston's very own Facebook page. That said, I agree the album's a little bit of a disappointment and was uh, interested in your William S. Burroughs take on other authors that have been successful in the music biz. One that uh, I thought that you could have made mention of was the collaborations between Warren Zevon and Carl Hyacin, the uh, columnist for the Miami Herald. They uh, did several songs together, Seminole Bingo, Rottweiler Blues, and Basket Case, which was written as if it was by a character from one of Hyacinth's novels. Dragon's daughter, Calamity Jane, smoke on the water, water on the brain, she's pretty as a picture, I'm totally crazed, my baby is a basket case. But anyway, just wanted to say thanks and uh, bend your ear a bit. She's gonna make a madman Thomas Gate. I just finished listening to your insert title of show here show. Everything you said about the artist album genre you discussed in your first segment was completely off base. Now I have to make it clear that while you two are experts on popular music, I know something more about what you discussed in the second segment than both of you put together. Finally, I'm going to admit to a guilty pleasure and tell you how much I enjoy the show and ask you to keep up the good work. Thank you. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.